to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Thursday, May 12, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. My guest today for our 29th episode of The Hale Report is the Honorable Kevin Michael Rudd, who twice served as the 26th Prime Minister of Australia and who is now President and CEO of the Asia Society in New York City. In addition to his many other duties, he's also working on his doctorate at Oxford, and his subject is Xi Jinping. Kevin, welcome today. Thank you so much, uh, Lyric. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Not at all. I would like to do one fact check with you and ask you if you remember, did David, my late husband and I, show up at the lodge unannounced one evening? Did that happen or did I not remember that correctly? (laughs) Oh, um, you're absolutely right, Lyric. You and David, your late husband and uh, my dear friend, um, arrived uh, one evening, I think, unannounced uh, at the lodge and... uh, which is a bit like arriving at the White House unannounced um, yes. and indicating there there were two American friends at the door and could they come in and see the Prime Minister? That was me. So we're a very hospitable bunch down there, as you know. Uh, and David had chutzpah cubed, and so uh, his ability to storm his way through the battlements of any situation were without precedent. So... Uh, security guards gave us a call and we said, fine, bring them in. It's uh, all going to be fine and dandy. So that's um, that's security Australian style. Right. And hospitality Australian style as well. I thought maybe I hallucinated that whole episode. I think in my memoirs, that will be one of the chapters, definitely. Well, we're really here to discuss your new book. And I think it's a very important book. And the name of it is The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China. You're in a unique position to have written this book because you've personally dealt with with the leaders of both sides at their level and also in their language. But I have to ask you, how did a boy from Queensland get to this position? What inspired you to enter Chinese studies? I hear it has something to do with your mother, as I recall. Yeah, to do with both my parents, actually. My father was desperate for me to become a farmer and asked me one day as a 10-year-old whether I'd made up my mind about life's great choice, being a beef farmer or a dairy farmer. Uh, And I decided probably neither of those. Thank you, Dad. Um, And I was a little bookish even as a kid. So whenever there was hard work to be done, I'd jump on a horse with a book and disappear to the farthest ends of the property and just start reading under a tree. And my mother, uh, who um, had never been through high school, and nor had my father for that matter, always, however, had a collection of, let's call it Reader's Digest-type books on the bookshelf and uh, always encouraged me to read widely and bought me a book uh, one day on Chinese archaeology. Uh, And and I began to look at this extraordinary... um, aesthetic achievement of a Chinese classical design. And for a kid in, um, I won't say remote Australia, but certainly in country Australia, it really lit up my imagination in terms of uh, this different sense of the aesthetic, this this uh, completely other world, which I knew nothing about. 
So I think that triggered a childhood interest to pursue a study of China, which, of course, I then later did when I made my way to university. That's right. And you also went to Taiwan. And I would like to talk about Taiwan with you. Um, The U.S. Department of State recently made a change to their website, much to the consternation of um, the officials in, in Beijing. How do you see the long-term future of Taiwan? And in your book, you say that this is a dangerous decade for Taiwan. Um, I know there are very various scenarios, but are we in August 1914, August 1941? Where does the danger lie? It's difficult to find a precise analogy with this one, but it's becoming more dangerous. I think that's what those of us who look carefully at the China-Taiwan question conclude. And in part, it's because of this. China has uh, a leader now, Xi Jinping, who's been in office for nine years, who's trying to accelerate the timetable for most things, which his predecessors were more prepared to let be resolved by history at an ill-defined point in the future. Xi Jinping is more of a timetable guy, sees himself as a man of history sort of guy. And the, the problem with men of history is they usually like to move the dial. Um, and uh, moving the dial for them often means moving the lines on a map. So for those reasons, we have a Xi Jinping uh, timetable, which in my judgment um, would occur uh, sometime within his political lifetime. Um, He's up for re-election, as you know, for a record third term uh, this coming November at the 20th Party Congress. My own analysis that he wants to remain in power through until about 2035. And for that reason, plus China still wishing to consolidate its military balance of power to its favour against the United States and the Taiwan Straits, and its desire to achieve greater financial independence and resilience from the US dollar. I think the uh, timetable more alive in Xi Jinping's mind is late 20s, early 30s. And of course, whether or not that unfolds will depend on two big factors, the extent and effectiveness of American military deterrence between now and then, and then furthermore, what the Taiwanese themselves do on the deterrence front domestically and their investment in asymmetric warfare fighting capabilities of the type we've seen so ably deployed now by the Ukrainians against Russia. But not really by Putin's actions in Ukraine. I get that question all the time. Has this speeded up the timetable? Um, I don't believe so. Do you think they're mar- that Xi Jinping's marching to his own timetable? Very much so. Um, I agree with you, um, Lyric. I have um, written about this uh, extensively in the United States, and my analysis is the same. Uh, Xi Jinping's timetable for Taiwan has long been, in my judgment, late 20s, early 30s, um, all other factors being equal. Of course, the PLA will undertake uh, lessons learned from Russia and Ukraine, All militaries do that. Uh, And they'll be looking in particular at the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of US financial sanctions against Russia. But these um, do not fundamentally adjust the strategic um, um, worldview of Xi Jinping, as I think a lot of the pop analysis of these questions tends to cause people superficially to conclude. Right. Well, that's good news because my daughter Erin lives in Taiwan and does not want to leave. So I'm I'm happy to hear that you agree with that. Upcoming, though, we have another issue, which is the quadrilateral strategic dialogue coming up May 24th 
and that's Japan, India, the U.S. We're not sure who's coming from Australia because your election is May 21st. But do you think that the Chinese view this as sort of NATO Pacific? Is this something that um, they're going to push back on? You write about this in your seventh circle in your book. Yeah, I think our Chinese friends need to reflect long and hard as to why the Quad came into being. There was Quad Mark One, which was first floated back in 2007. Uh, in fact, when I was in office. Right. But there was no enthusiasm then for it, either in Japan under Fukuda, um, in India under Mamahan Singh, uh, and frankly, in Bush's White House either. Mm-hmm. Uh, in as being premature and perhaps unnecessarily provocative early on. But Quad Mark II has arisen because of, uh, frankly, Xi Jinping's more assertive posture than that of his predecessor, Hu Jintao. And as a consequence directly of uh, China's military engagement with India across the Sino-Indian border in April, May, June of 2020, India went from a position of what I would describe as benign indifference on the future of the of the Quad to active participation and elevation of it rapidly to summit level. My friends in Delhi tell me it's not likely to change course uh, in Delhi uh, for the long-term future because they see China as a strategic competitor and, given the history, also strategic adversary. So how does Beijing view it? Um, if they were being honest and reflective about it, they would see that it's actually a response structurally in international relations to uh, a new assertive approach by the Chinese leadership. That's why countries like Japan, India and Australia have found merit in this to, quote, balance against, unquote, a rising China. Do they see it as Pacific NATO? They may do so in uh, propaganda terms, but at this stage... And it's unlikely to evolve in this direction. Um, unlike NATO, it is uh, not a mutual defence pact. It is a framework for heightened foreign policy, strategic policy, and frankly, development policy collaboration between these four. And a strategic utility for the rest of Asia to provide some strategic ballast in order to provide the rest of the region, for example, in Southeast Asia, with greater room for manoeuvre. Well, you've said that um, the focus of Xi Jinping's leadership team is security, 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 and the economy is not um, not on the radar, really. Couldn't you say that is true in Washington as well today, that the rise of the China hawks on both sides of the aisle, it, it does appear that um, the U.S.-China policy, which was expected to change when President Biden took office, has not happened. Is this the danger that on both sides, the focus is not on practical things um, like trade, but really is on security? Well, I suppose in the the world that I come from, both security and trade are both practical things. And therefore right. we can <laughs> Good point. juxtapose one against the other. In Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, um, security uh, physically and having a job are both near the base of the pyramid uh, of everyone's hierarchy of needs. I think uh, if you look at um, the rise of a hawkish view of China, both in uh, and of China-US relations uh, in Washington, but also in Beijing, and also in many other capitals around the Indo-Pacific region, the underpinning drivers tend to be um, a 
rapid change in the balance of military power and the broader balance of power between the US and China over the last decade. Uh, the Chinese have a term which is Guoli, comprehensive national power, uh, which has um, uh, often the subject of internal discourse within the Chinese system. Because as the balance swings more in Beijing's direction, they sense and conclude they have more opportunity to become more assertive. Secondly, Xi Jinping's leadership on top of that has been um, uh, a complete repudiation of Deng Xiaoping's doctrine of hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead. Uh, it's what I describe as loud and proud. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, people have begun to react against that. And then thirdly, the other dynamic is the United States. To be frank, starting in the second Obama administration, certainly in the, the Trump administration, although incoherently so in my judgment, uh, and then um, uh, continued under the Biden administration, has begun structurally to respond to this new across-the-board strategic competition. I think the final point, however, I would say about hawks, whether they're in Beijing, whether they are in um, Washington, or whether they are in Canberra or Delhi or Tokyo, is uh, being um, bellicose about um, the US-China relationship uh, in your language is one thing. Um, in terms of a coherent US and allied response to China's rise, what's required is not an adjustment in a declaratory strategy versus uh, China. What's required is a sensible, rational, long-term, sustainable um, operational strategy for responding to China's uh, rise, which is as much military as it is economic, which is as much economic as it is technological, etc. And it is that sort of sophisticated, all-embracing strategy, which um, I understand the US administration has been seeking to work on. We'll see more of that when eventually the administration releases its uh, China strategy for the future. Right. Yeah, I guess Secretary Blinken was scheduled to make a speech and then he got COVID. And so we haven't seen that. Yeah, he was here to make at Asia Society with us uh, in D.C. Um, a little while ago. Yes, and... Uh, uh, ends of COVID um, uh, pay, put paid to that, but I'm sure it'll be um, it'll be uh, resuscitated sometime soon once the secretary is through all of that. Right. Well, to make all of this work, though, one of the phrases that you you use in your book is um, the death of strategic trust, and I think that's a really important. So even if you have a strategy and the other side has a strategy, but there's no trust between the two parties, how can we go forward? Well, it's one of the reasons why the book um, deals um, with what I call managed strategic competition. In summary, um, Lyric, what the book does is three things. It tries to answer this question, well, how the hell did we get here uh, in terms of the current state of the US-China relationship, which I think all of us analytically would agree is the worst shape it's been in since uh, Nixon and Kissinger went to Beijing literally half a century ago. The second part of the book seeks to explain what is Xi Jinping's actual worldview and uh, his priority of needs within that, both political, economic and strategic? And then thirdly, what to do about this um, um, intelligently in managing a US-China competitive relationship without it uh, escalating into crisis, conflict and war, either by accident or design? So what I advocate is rather than unmanaged strategic competition where there are no guardrails, where there are no rules of the road, um, but it's basically 
uh, a rolling sort of shootout at the OK Corral and may the best man win sort of thing. Uh, what I recommend instead is manage strategic competition with some de minima guardrails, some de minima rules of the road in order to reduce the risk of inadvertent crisis, escalation, conflict and war. This is not a pie-in-the-sky proposition. It's a realist proposition and seeks to draw upon many of the lessons learned by the US and the Soviets in the period after the near-death experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And so, therefore, managed strategic competition in three quick dot points is about the mutual um, uh, identification of each side's core strategic red lines around Taiwan, around the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the Korean Peninsula cyber and space. It's about defining areas of non-lethal strategic competition in the rest of the relationship, foreign policy, economic policy, technology policy, even ideology, and the great contest for ideas underpinning the architecture of the future international system. And then finally, still carving out strategic space and diplomatic space for necessary strategic collaboration where it's necessary from the national interests of both countries, either in a climate change action, the next pandemic, given how much we screwed up the management of the last one. Right. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, continuing global financial management and stability as well. That's the core argument of the book. I do not argue for a magical resuscitation of trust, but what I do say is that if both sides could embrace a realist joint strategic framework of the type I've described, incrementally it may re-inject stability uh, in the strategic relationship right. between the two, and over time, um, a greater predictability in behaviours. And that, of course, is the precursor to some level of strategic trust. Right. But I seek to do a step-by-step -step realist approach. Right. You know, as I was reading, I thought, you know, is the United States government, the Chinese government, are we capable, even though we do not share the same values, recognizing that we share the same interests, have many interests in common? And if we aren't able to do that, what are the consequences? A bifurcated world, potentially a nuclear war is the ultimate catastrophe that could happen. And I think it's another reason why your, your book is so important for people to realize this. I don't know, I, I'm sure you saw On the Beach because it's in Australia, but The Day After is also um, a film about the consequences of nuclear war. And evidently, President Reagan saw it and was profoundly depressed, and it was one of the reasons that he sought peace with Mikhail Gorbachev, and he made his staff watch that as well. I wonder if current leaders are as aware of what the unbelievable consequences would be of an abject failure to achieve the kind of goals that you're talking about. Yeah, I'd like to see mandatory um, uh, screenings uh, of uh, On the Beach and the Day After, both mm -hmm. in Zhongnanhai and Beijing with Chinese subtitles <laughs> and, in the, and in the United States Congress. Yes, uh, please. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I know uh, military leaders, for example, friend and colleague of mine, Jim Stavridis, uh, former uh, Supreme Commander of NATO in Europe. Uh, Jim has often reflected on the fact that um, on the beach had a profound effect on his generation of American military leaders oh. of the unthinkable consequences of nuclear war. Um, and this was at the height of the debate in Europe about um, theater nuclear weapons, intermediate range nuclear weapons, 
etc., and the incorporation of nuclear weapons into warfighting strategies as opposed to pure deterrence. Uh, I think this is sobering, um, deeply sobering, if we have any concern for our children, our grandchildren. And on that uh, score, um, lyric, it's by no accident that I dedicate my book, The Avoidable War, to our three grandchildren. Uh, That was perfect, yes. And uh, loved grandchildren the world over, Chinese and American, um, as we seek to carve out a future for them rather than seek to extirpate strategic angst within our own chests, but create an appalling world for those who come after us. That's, that's right. And the economic consequences, I was just reading today that, for example, high contrast dyes are basically unavailable for medical treatment in the United States now. Um, there are all kinds of ways that this conflict makes us poorer. Well, we've been the beneficiaries of decades now of uh, economic globalization. It's generated various political reactions around the world, mm-hmm. um, whether it's um, uh, Trumpian isolationists, uh, whether it's Chinese nationalists seeking to decouple on their own terms, whether it's uh, Marine Le Pen uh, and European uh, nationalists versus globalists. And that's the dichotomy which she seeks to construct in order to garner support from those who she describes as losing from the globalization project. But the bottom line is what's happened. We've had unprecedented increases in global economic wealth, more and more people lifted out of poverty. Um, and on top of that, the availability to access uh, more affordable uh, basic uh, goods and services for working families on limited budgets. Take, for example, this shirt that I'm wearing at the moment. When I was a kid, buying a new shirt at your local store, necessarily made in Australia uh, under the protectionist policies of the time, probably in nominal dollar terms cost about as much then as it uh, does now. Uh, Therefore, it represented a huge Mm -hmm. slice of the family budget. And you may get one new shirt a year, maybe. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, roll the clock on. Are all these shirts now made in Australia, United States? No, they're made in other parts of the world. Quality of shirts, good? Yeah. And on top of that, um, are they much more affordable for working families than people who buy stuff at Walmart, for example? Uh, Yes, it is. So people need to be mindful of the impact of what happens when you decide for nationalist reasons to, quote, decouple from the rest of the world. I understand President Biden's argument about certain strategic industries, for example, in pharmaceuticals and the rest, and in critical medical equipment. I get that. Um, there are parallel debates around the world. But if we start to throw out the baby with the bathwater uh, on all this, um, maybe that's an Australian expression and not an American expression, but basically <laughs> overreach. Right. Um, and this is a license to go back to forms of mercantilism, protectionism, and economic nationalism. Uh, Not only does it fuel nationalist sentiment more broadly to the detriment of all of us, it will actually negatively impact living standards for working Americans, working Australians, working Europeans. So the task of politics is to smooth things out on the way through, provide adjustment for families and communities badly hit by the economic adjustment process, and different pathways to alternative futures and not just ignoring them and throwing them on the on the uh, the funereal pyre of uh, economic globalization as the old steel towns of Pennsylvania just it's shut happened. down. That's exactly what happened. There was no provision for re-education. Uh, and the irresponsibility of um, 
generations of political leaders who just said, yeah, uh, we're not interested in that. Well, you'll breed a reaction, understandably, if it was my family and my community in um, in Scranton, where um, President, where Joe Biden's family come from. Guess what? I'd feel pretty angry about that. Mm-hmm. And legit, so if there's no helping hand on the way through to adapt and to adjust um, to the new demands of economic history, otherwise the politics of sustained globalization becomes unmanageable, both in the United States, but there is actually now a parallel debate in China itself. Mm. Well, beyond the national politics of this, I wanted to ask you what you think about the global, the role of global institutions today, because there seemed to be the WTO, the UN, the WHO. We seem to have a, a series, they don't have enforcement capabilities, what can be done so that international cooperation is better aligned with the crises that we have on our hands? The truth of uh, global governance since 1945 is that the institutions of global governance, either in security, economics, trade, and latterly the environment, and in other domains as well, uh, work to the extent to which national governments within those global institutions allow them to work. And what's happened with American leadership uh, really in the post-45 period with the United Nations and the Bretton Woods institutions, including the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which eventually evolved into the World Trade Organization, uh, is that these institutions were able to do their job because critical governments like the United States, but its friends, partners and allies around the world, made these institutions work for the collective good. Um, What we've seen, however, in recent decades is what I describe as death by a thousand cuts to these various institutions. The Security Council of the United Nations, despite the end of the Cold War in 1991, has become increasingly atrophied by internal division on critical security questions which affect uh, P5 member states, so the veto is wielded. Secondly, as you said, the WTO has ground into operational Uh, irrelevance in large part because the Trump administration froze appointments to the International Disputes Panel uh, of the WTO to regulate and arbitrate on international trade disputes because Trump thought it was good politics to hit it. The United States under Trump unilaterally withdrew from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It withdrew from the Human Rights Council. The really weird thing from my point of view as a long-standing friend and ally of the United States is that all these institutions are America's children. Exactly. (laughs) The IMF World Bank as well, yeah. I haven't even touched on the bank and the fund and the rest Mm -hmm. of the family. And so therefore, the challenge for the Biden administration, and I understand and see evidence that they're working in this direction, is to breathe life back into them to the extent possible, given the um, the drumbeats of war which do exist, both with the Russians and to a lesser extent with the Chinese. But rather than be seen as America's uh, responsibility alone, it is a coalition of what I describe as um, constructive powers around the world. Um, the Germans, the French, the British, the Europeans, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Australians, and others, and the Canadians and the Latin Americans to breathe life and dynamism back into these institutions. They will only work, as I said in my uh, earlier remarks on this part of our discussion, the extent to which national governments want them to work. And that requires at least a core group of nation states who are member states 
to recognise that global governance and global institutions based on globally accepted values enhance um, national and global stability rather than the reverse. And what at present we're lacking is this coalition of the policy willing for that to occur. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, even um, in terms of institutions like the Federal Reserve, which is in truth the, the central bank of the world, uh, when it sets rates that everybody else follows. And I ask a member of the board, when you raise interest rates, do you consider the effects on, for example, emerging markets and what a, a stronger dollar, higher interest rates mean for them in the present global difficulties we have, potential recession? And the answer I got was no. We basically, we, we, we try to be transparent about it, but basically we make policy for the United States. That's not our key concern. So I worry about the, the breadth of vision that the people in these institutions might have and how this might accelerate a bifurcation, you know, the end of the unipolar world and a, the creation of a global south and a global north as a result of all these powerful currents. Well, the United States after the Second World War, through considerable sacrifice by American and Americans themselves, um, w emerged as the dominant economy in 45, representing 60, 60% of global GDP. That has now shrunk to something like 20% um, of global GDP. Um, but with global re uh, opportunity comes global responsibility. And people will come with American leadership on the condition that the leadership always takes a broader view beyond the narrow U.S. national uh, self-interest. That's one of the reasons, for example, why America's global leadership on global free trade is such a howling gap in the current global debate. If America decides to be protectionist, guess what? The rest of the world will decide to be trebly protectionist. Um, and that will easily take off several percentage points from global economic growth each year <laughs> as you um, begin to reap the, uh, the, uh, the impact uh, and the consequences of contracting global activity. Given something like 20, 30% of global GDP comes from the traded sector of the global economy, and this is a really big effect if you start to throttle global free trade. That's just one example of where we need to see renewed American global leadership. Um, and it is one of the dumbest things I've seen in the United States Congress. And I say this as a former politician and political leader in my own country. When they think that you can have an effective strategy for dealing with China's rise on the one hand and pursue a protectionist policy about the United States economy on the other, when U.S. economic growth will be constrained by protectionism. And furthermore, you'll constrain the growth of the economies of your friends, partners and allies around the world. Mm -hmm. If you America is always stronger when its borders um, to global trade and commerce and investment are open, just as America is always stronger by maintaining an open immigration policy as well. It, it energizes, expands and grows the United States, enabling the U.S. to continue to dynamically reinvent itself. So to protectionists in Congress, I would simply say this. If you want China to win this global economic contest against the United States, go right ahead and continue to be capital P protectionists. 
if you'd like to give America a big fighting chance against the future size, shape and dynamism of the US economy against its Chinese statist, partyist, um, uh, heavily controlled economy on the other, then re-embrace the principles of free trade and commerce and capital flows. Exactly. You know I agree with you on, on this, absolutely. Um, and lead by example as well. So the forces of deglobalization or separation have certainly been accelerated by COVID and also by um, the war in Ukraine. How do you see that playing out? What are the negative long-term effects or will these effects be dissipating over the next year or so? On the question of Ukraine, um, this is a crisis which is unfolding in slow motion. Um, but I think um, its global economic impact is large, not least because of the commodity price impact, both on energy prices, but also agricultural commodities, and the extent to which this in turn fuels global inflation, and the extent to which this in turn fuels global interest rate adjustments, which in turn uh, fuel uh, the probability of us entering into either a recession in the developed world or a global recession, given that soft landings are always hard to engineer through the blunt instrument of, uh, of monetary policy. So the geopolitics of what's unfolding uh, with Ukraine has profound global economic consequences. To what extent will this be um, factored in by 12 months' time? It depends on the political alchemy in Vladimir Putin's mind and when he decides that, quote, he can declare victory, unquote, over whatever shambolic um, political and military outcome he's achieved in the Donbass. Um, and that is um, well beyond my pay grade, given I'm a China guy, not a Russia guy. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, our listeners, I hope if they care about the future of their children and grandchildren, that I highly recommend that they read your book, as has Henry Kissinger and Graham Allison and a whole host of other uh, scholars and people who care about what's happening to the world that we live in. All of the things that you address in your book are ongoing issues. Where can our listeners follow you on Twitter, the Asia Society website? Where, where can they catch up with Kevin Rudd to hear about your latest views? Thank you very much, um, Lyric, for the opportunity. As president and CEO of a, a venerable American institution, which is the Asia Society, which has been around since John D. Rockefeller III brought it into being in 1956, which I hasten to say was well before I was born, um, <laughs> we have uh, 250 staff in 15 centers around the world, uh, five of which are in the United States. Um, go to the Asia Society website. And uh, the Asia Society website has the best update for everything I'm doing on US-China in a series of work we do on what I call the Avoidable War series. But furthermore, on top of that, our regular quarterly updates on the state of the Chinese political economy, which I produced um, again um, uh, only just uh, several days ago, a summary of which is in the most uh, in a, a recent edition of the Wall Street Journal. So Asia Society first, and that'll give you links to everywhere else that uh, this uh, buccaneering Australian is seeking to inject some views, rational or otherwise, into the U.S. Uh, domestic discourse on the future of U.S.-China relations. Well, we're very lucky to have you in the United States now, Kevin. Thank you. And hope to see you again soon. 
and we will post a links to everything that you've mentioned um, in the podcast so people okay. can follow up because I think they will want to. Thank you so much, Larry, and my greetings to everyone who uh, subscribes to your podcast. Thank all you. the best. Thank you so much, Kevin. I want to thank also all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, uh, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. 